0: Well, this morning we're going to see a part of David's life where he failed to follow directions. And it's really critical, and I'm going to take you to 2 Samuel 6. But before I do, I want to kind of bring you up to date because we left David in a cave, if you remember. This is about a month ago when we were doing the David series. And remember the old concept of being a troglobite? How dark it can be in the cave? Well, David spent Thirteen years basically hiding out in caves to keep away from King Saul, just kind of like Robin Hood, you know. And he had his merry Men, He had his 600 warriors. And they were really finely tuned warriors. In fact, they were instrumental in keeping a lot of the warring nations off the backs of his fellow Jews. And yet still he tried to remain elusive from King Saul during this whole period of time. But after a period of time, King Saul met his his destiny, and in a battle with the Philistines on Mount Gilboa, Saul was killed, and so was Jonathan. So we kind of see David here now at a point in his life where God, if you remember, anointed him way back as a shepherd boy to be the king. Now at age 30, he was really ready to be king. This was his opportunity with Saul out of the way. So David, really, one of his first, I guess, Priorities of duty was to somehow bring the kingdom of Israel back under the guidance and leadership of God rather than an evil king who was all jealous and narcissistic. And so the first order of business for David was let's get the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem where God belongs. The problem was the Ark of the Covenant was taken in a battle, and it, it, now it was time for David to get it back, which was, if you remember, symbolic of the presence of God. In fact, if you're not sure what the Ark of the Covenant looks like, I have an illustration of this up here. The Ark of the Covenant had very specific instructions attached to it. Inside the Ark of the Covenant, it was two foot by four foot. It was built out of acacia wood, and it was covered with gold, and it was carried on poles... Uh, through rings that were put in there, and it was to be carried by uh, the priest, and only the priest. So it was a very, very sensitive, holy object that God gave the people of Israel as a symbol of his presence. So David thought, you know, now I'm king, let's get the Ark of the Covenant, let's get God's presence back into the center and focus of the nation of Israel. And so he decides to go get the Ark, Great motives. He had right motives here. But you'll see here in a minute that he failed to follow directions. And that's something that we need to talk about this morning. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 6. 2 Samuel chapter 6. David again brought together out of Israel chosen men, 30,000 in all. He and all his men set out from Bala of Judah to bring up from there the Ark of the God, of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the Ark. They set the Ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the Ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with songs, with harps, lyres, tambourines, sistrums, and cymbals. So they were really excited about all this. One problem. Verse 6. When they came to the threshing floor of Necan, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act, and therefore God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. Wow! Was that really fair? Well, verse 8, then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah, and to this day that place is called Peres-Uzzah. Now it's fascinating to me here that David's mad at God and angry about losing Uzzah over this when he had the right motivation. But sometimes we miss the boat when we have the right motivation, but we use the wrong methodology. And here's how it is explained in verse 9. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it aside in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now, we're going to stop right there. Now, I want you to notice here that David had the right motives. And the first principle I want to share with you this morning is this. Doing the right thing has got to start with the right motive. Wrong motive, do the right thing, and you've got a problem. You can have the right motive and do the wrong thing, and you've still got a problem. And that's what was going on with David. See, he had good motives. And I guess my question to you this morning, what motivates you to keep God as a priority in your life? What motivates you and gets you excited about having God back in your life? Well, in this particular case, there was a long spiritual dry spell, and it was long overdue to bring God back into the life of Israel as a high priority. And maybe for some of you in your life, you've had maybe a long, long dry spell. It's been a long time since you really felt close to God and you felt like God was really an important part of your life and this intimacy factor wasn't there. And so it's kind of been motivating you to say, you know what, I need to get it together. I need to, it's been a long time. Perhaps some of you, it's because of some difficult circumstances. Maybe you've had some health issues or or financial issues or relational issues. And it's been, been pushing you and compelling you to say, you know what, I need to get God back in my life. I can't do this by myself. Or maybe it's even because you've had some special blessings lately, and life has been really good, and you realize that all those blessings are coming from the Lord. and You say, wow, that I really appreciate that, and I want God to be at the center and focus of my life. Maybe some of you, it's just plain guilt. There's been some unconfessed sin. There's been some areas of rebellion in your life, and you realize, you know what? i got to knock this off, and I need to make sure that God comes back into my life so he's the center and focus of my attention instead of my own selfish and fleshly desires. Maybe it's just a a good sermon that recently you heard, and it just kind of motivated you, and you said, you know what? I heard this message, and I really think it was for me. You know what, God? It's really important for me to make you a priority in my life. Or... Is it what Paul talks about in Corinthians when he says, I feel compelled by the love of Christ. That's what motivates me. It's the love that he demonstrated on the cross. We just celebrated it a few minutes ago. Is that what's really motivating you and compelling you to serve God and to do what God wants you to do and follow his direction? You see, David did have the right motivation here. He wanted God back in the presence of Israel But as once Thomas Jefferson said, when the heart is right, sometimes the feet are swift. And the problem was, he was operating on an emotional level, motivated with the right motivation, but he failed to read the directions. What were the directions? Well, the directions are very, very clear. You don't have laymen pick up the ark and throw it on a cart and haul it away. No, this is a holy God who has some very specific directions. It was to be carried by consecrated priests only, and it was to be revered and carefully carried by hand to wherever it was needed to go. And David ignored those directions and just went ahead and threw it on a cart and let some layman handle the problem. And Look what happened in terms of its consequences. You see, David had the right motives, but he had the wrong methods. And that's principle number two. Right motives do not justify wrong methods. Right motives do not justify wrong methods. There's a great story about a guy, a guy named Jake and Sam. Jake was a game warden. And he was always amazed that Sam, a fisherman, showed up at the end of every day with a couple of three stringers full of fish. This happened when all the other fishermen came back with only two or three fish. Now, this particular lake was loaded with fish, but they seemed to elude the average fisherman, so there was no limit on number, only on size. And yet all of Sam's fish were big enough to bring home. The curiosity of the game warden finally got the best of him. So on one occasion, he said to Sam, you know, I'd like to know your secret, Sam of man of not too many words, show up tomorrow morning. Well, the next morning, long before dawn, the game warden was there and Sam showed up and met him, started the motor, and 30 or 40 minutes later they were out in some secluded part of the lake. It was important to Sam that no one else be around. Uh, When they stopped the motor, uh, everything was still as it could be. Sam reached down in his tackle box, pulled out a slender stick of dynamite, lit it, tossed it in the air. When it hit the level of the lake, there was an enormous explosion, and in a matter of seconds, fish of all sizes began to float up to the top of the lake. Without a word, Sam just began to row his way over and with his net, pick up the largest fish and string them. Jake screamed, Wait! You break every rule in the book. I'm going to throw the book at you. You'll be paying fines. I'm going to stick you in jail. About that time, Sam reached in his box, pulled out another stick of dynamite, He lit it and tossed it in Jake's lap and said, Are you going to sit there watching all day or are you going to fish? (laughs) Sam may have had some ulterior motives, but we would assume that he had the right motives. But he definitely was using the wrong methods. You see, David places the Ark of Covenant on a cart. That's not how it was supposed to be done. A layman. Touched it, never touch the ark, and God struck us dead for a failure to follow directions. See, God made all that very, very clear, and yet some, for some reason, in David's zeal to get the job done, he didn't read the directions. That's principle number three. When we use the wrong methods, even the right motives, even with the right motives, there can be serious consequences. Maybe sometime you can think about in your own life where you had the right motives. You you, you tried to do the right thing, you know, but you did it without really failure to understand all the implications. You failed to go to the Lord with it. You failed to read scripture and find out what God might be saying about it. And so you just kind of jump in with both feet because that's your nature. You just want to fix it and you want to do something with it. And so you have all these good motives. Your heart's right, but you just don't or, or really read the direction book enough, or you don't take the time to understand that there could be consequences with you jumping in and taking charge for yourself. Can you remember those times in your life? Do you remember the consequences of those kinds of decisions, where you sort of take the law in your own hands? Oh yeah, you've got the right heart. It's really critical that we're familiar. With the instruction manual, uh, I brought this along with me this morning because I've been in school for the last almost two months now. I'm uh, getting ready to be what they call a VIP for the sheriff's department. And so I intend to be a chaplain for our sheriff's deputies. And I'm really excited about it, but this is the instruction manual. I mean, this is ridiculous, but it's really important. And it's really important for me to know what's in this manual. It's really important for me to know especially things about safety and, and about what's reasonable force and all those kinds of things that you need to know in order to be out on the street. Folks, I have to take that really seriously or I'm going to flunk out of the class. Do we take this instruction manual seriously? Do we really understand how important this is, how critical it is to know what's in this book, to follow the instructions? You see, if David could have saved him a tremendous amount of angst, if he would had just gone back because it was all written down for him in Deuteronomy as to how he was to handle that ark. But his zeal and his excitement got the best of him, and as a result, poor Uzzah died. And you could say, well, that was pretty harsh about God. But I think what God was trying to say to all of us, look, when I give directions, this is not suggestions, I'm a holy, righteous God, and you don't mess with me. You take me seriously. What's really cool about this, though, is David finally got it right. Right? You see, right motives and right methods are really important. And what I love about this is there's a do-over for David. Here's what's really fun. Let's read on here, and we, we already touched this, but we noticed that what David did, he didn't want to mess with the ark after he had this problem, and so he leaves the ark with Obed-Edom. Now, you can imagine if you were Obed-Edom. I mean, can you imagine this? You know, This Uzzah just touched the ark. He was trying to do the right thing to steady this whole thing. And yet God struck him dead. You want to leave the ark at my house? Are you kidding me? No way. But for some reason, he allowed God to be the center of his house, to be present in his home. And what was really important here is you notice that the Lord blessed him and his entire household. You know what I love about this? This is principle number four. When we experience God's presence in our homes, we will be blessed and other people will take notice. Is that how it is at your house? When when people stop by, your neighbors, people that are around you, when they see what's going on in your home, do they really sense the presence of God in your home? And they sense there's something being blessed going on in your home? That's what I love about this. You see, when you bring God into your home and he becomes a priority and his presence is known, it's exciting to see how God can bless. Amen? So David gets this do-over. Verse 12, now King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So what does David do? He goes down a second time. So David went down and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. Now notice when those who were, what this time? Carrying the ark. They did it right this time. They were carrying the ark. And when those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull. They consecrated themselves like they were supposed to in a fatted calf. And then David, wearing a linen ephod, which is really interesting, he kind of took off his kingly robes and put on these priestly robes, which was a very humbling thing for him to do. And so wearing this ephod, he danced before the Lord with all of his might, and he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and sounds of trumpets awesome. See, God was back in town. Hallelujah. And people were excited about this. You see, principle number five here is when we have the right motives and the right methods, we can find great joy. Amen. You know, have you ever noticed that in your life when you do it God's way and you do it with the right motives, how good it seems to work out and how exciting life can be when you're doing it God's way and with you, with you doing it with God's heart I mean, there was just ecstatic excitement. And David, unabashedly, unreservedly let it all hang out. He let his hair down completely with no shame, no embarrassment whatsoever. He just had a great time of celebrating that God's back in town. You know what bothers me? We live in a culture... Where we do not have that kind of an attitude. What's wrong with us sometimes, I think? You know, I don't know if it's our Western mindset of being so linear and intellectual and all of that. When's the last time you just kind of lost it for Jesus? You know what I mean? I was watching the uh, Diamondbacks game the other night, and when Paul Goldschmidt hit a home run, they, the camera zeroes in on John McCain. And, you know, he can't get his arms completely up, but he was like this, and he was just going around, and he was just screaming and yelling. He was just so excited, and and even the announcer said it's the first time he ever looked like Howard Dean, you know? I mean, if you know anything politically. But it was really fabulous. It was just amazing to see him so excited. I've never seen John McCain so, so excited, and I think, when's the last time we got that excited about Jesus? You know, we could sit at a sporting event and scream and holler and yell and act like a maniac when we come to church and we sit down and we worship, we sit down and we worship. You know what I mean? You know, I'm not saying that we should make a show out of it, but I'm just wondering, you know, when we come into the presence of the Lord and realize that God is here, why can't we be more celebrative? You know what I mean? I just read an article this morning that came across my Facebook where a guy was saying, why don't men sing in church? That was an interesting article. But one of the reasons they said it's a lot of times the men aren't terribly familiar with the songs because there's obviously newer songs, and so it's given them an excuse to just sit back and be entertained. And maybe we haven't done a good enough job in in, in familiarizing you with some of the songs and maybe some of the old hymns, but it's fascinating when you start singing the old hymn of amazing grace or great is thy faithfulness. You know, it's funny how everybody kind of joins in because it's what they're familiar with, right? But we come to church week after week, and we celebrate the Lord, and many of us sit there like bumps on a log. And I think, why can't we? Why can't we get a little excited about Jesus? Why can't we dance in the street? What's wrong with that? You know why? Because a lot of us are so worried about what everybody thinks. And you know, there's always a party pooper. Have you noticed that? we got one here, too. You want to read about it? Let's go on. Verse 16, as the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, remember good old Michael, who David was so excited about having for a wife, daughter of Saul, watched from a window, and when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. Ticked her off. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. And after he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. And then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person. And the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women, and all the people went to their homes. It was a great celebration. Fired up. Excited. Then he goes home. When David returned home to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. David, what are you thinking? Are you nuts? You're the king. You're not acting like a king. What's wrong with you? Here's David's response. David said to Michael, It was before the Lord. It wasn't about the slave girls. I was rejoicing in the Lord. It's about God. I want to say, I could add a few more words here to say, get off your high horse, Michael, knock it off. But anyways, he says, I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this. And I will be humiliated in my own eyes. He said, I don't care what people think. This is about God. This is about celebrating. This is about bringing God back into the life of Israel. So, Michael, get a life. You know, he didn't say that, but that was basically what he was trying to say. He said, I don't care. When's the last time you had that attitude? When's the last time you came before the Lord and you said, I don't care what people think around me, I don't care if I can't sing a lick? I'm going to praise God. I'm going to raise my hands. I'm going to clap. I'm going to do because I love God and I'm celebrating his presence in my life. What's wrong with that? Well, you don't want to get too excited. You don't want to get over, you know, come on. Who are we talking about here? This is not just some sporting event. Sorry, I got a little wound up there. So let me close here with some questions. Here's David. God's back in town. Is God back in your life this morning? Have you had a long period of emptiness maybe in your life lately? It's been kind of dry. It's been kind of lifeless. You've been just kind of on cruise control, and you're kind of like the nation of Israel. You know, it's, it's been a long time. It's been a long time for some of you that have had that, those moments of great intimacy and fellowship with the Lord Jesus. And, and, and you've just need to get God back in your life. You need to, to make him a priority again. You need to raise the level of his presence in your life. Here's another one as I thought through this message: it says, with What motivates you to serve God? What's your motivation? Why, why do you get involved at in church? Why are you in a community group? Why do you do what you do? Have you ever sat down and really analyzed those motives in your life? What's constraining you? What's compelling you to do that? Is it the love of Jesus Christ and what he did for you on the cross? Is that what's compelling you or is it guilt? Or is it just because you're an active person and you just got to stay busy? Or you're just feeling guilty and you have the I should have problems or whatever it is. What's motivating you? Is it the love of Christ or is it something else? Here's another question that I thought about as I was studying this for myself. Where have I gone and done things with maybe the right motives, but I, I did it the wrong way? <laughs> and, and for some of you, you, you look back on some things and decisions that you've made, and you're paying some consequences of it, and you're almost kind of blaming God, kind of like David. You're kind of angry at God that things aren't going the right way. And then you re- realize, you know, what, you know what? If I'd have done it a different way, and I'd I'd have taken the time to seek the Lord and to to understand the instruction book and to do the right thing, maybe I wouldn't be dealing with this issue right now. Instead of being mad at God, maybe I need to be a little upset with myself for not reading the book. Following the directions. Here's another question that I already alluded to, and that is, when's the last time you had unrestrained joy in your life? Where you just were giddy, you know? You just, you know... This God thing is so fun. This is so exciting. Was it that time you shared Christ with somebody and they responded to you? Was it it that opportunity to serve and you saw God use you in your life and you said this unrestrained joy? It's like, yeah, this is awesome. Hallelujah, God's back in my life. Why are we so inhibited? And finally, how do you handle people who rain on your parade? You know, some of us really... It's hard for us to handle that criticism in our life. When we're excited about something, there's always somebody that's got the downside or the cup's half empty. You know those kind of people in your life? You know what I love about David? Even his own wife, he said, you know what? It's not about the slave girls. It's not about you either, Michael. This is about me and God. And I'm so focused right now. I'm so energized. I'm not going to let you be a downer in my life. You know people like that? Let's pray together. Father, I sense your spirit speaking to all of us this morning. It's so critical, Lord. You've given us a great resource, your, your word, the Bible. And it's not a book of suggestions, it's a book of directions. Forgive us for not being too familiar with it, or even knowing what the directions are and we just ignore it. I pray for that person who maybe recently did something maybe perhaps with the right motives, but it all went sour because they used the wrong methods. And they're paying those consequences right now. God, I'm just so thankful that you're a God of do-overs, that we can get it right the next time. We need to know that you forgive us and that we can move on. We know that there are consequences sometimes that are really difficult to swallow, but in reality, Lord, you're still a redemptive God and you want us to to come to you. And so for that person that's been struggling and inheriting some consequences of maybe even doing the right thing, thing but had the wrong motives. Whatever it is, Lord, help them to know that your grace is sufficient. God, I I just pray that you would forgive us at times for being so passive and so lethargic. When we come into your presence, God, it should be something that's so exciting. And to know your presence should unleash some of those inhibitions and get us excited to know that we're worshiping and enjoying the presence of a living God who loves us so much. And Lord, for some of us who have those naysayers in our lives, that we allow them to influence us, those criticisms, those remarks that take away our joy and rob us of our joy, don't let that happen. I pray that we would always come back to you and know that you are the reason that we rejoice. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.